So who is uh, this? I grew up thinking that was Bigfoot, or a large person in a Bigfoot costume. Now I hear Sasquatch is the chosen term, or for the kids who are really in the know, simply Squatch. So when you go out looking for Big Book, you, it's now verb, you're now Squatching. So I'm told. Who's this? Also a nickname, Nessie, if you will. I was thinking of Squatch and Nessie when I was watching the movie for today, this character. Grainy stock photos of Sisto Rodriguez, the subject of today's Spirit Flicks movie, Searching for Sugar Man, winner of the documentary Best Picture, Best Documentary, last year, 2012. Sisto Rodriguez, if you keep that up for a little bit, seen in old very often grainy photos from the early 1970s. Sisto Rodriguez, who had two albums released between 1970 and 1973 that both completely flopped in the United States, but who developed a cult underground and eventually large following in the country of South Africa under the ironclad rule of oppression and apartheid. This movie opens with a whole bunch of producers who have worked with Sisto Rodriguez or did in the beginning of his career. And you get this energy about this guy, this mysterious guy. You get this energy from all these producers who worked with him. He could have been a contender. He should have been one of the greats. I mean, some of these producers, they're, they're crying when talking about how he should have been recognized. Some of them locate the fault in themselves as producers, reflecting back on the music they made with him and saying, if, if, if we had just used an oboe here instead of strings in the arrangement, maybe that would have made the difference. Some take a, a broader scale, large scale social analysis, bigger cultural things, that for a Latin kid from inner city Detroit who sang like Bob Dylan, maybe because of the limitations, the cultural limitations of his time, they had no idea how to market him. And so his career fell to the earth because he crossed boundaries that people were not ready to have crossed. There are all these urban legends about Sisto Rodriguez that after his two albums flopped, he took to the stage one night in a small smoky club, did his song with his back to the audience, not even looking them in the eye, thanked the crowd, doused himself in gasoline and self-immolated. Another urban legend says that one night he ended his set halfway through, took out a pistol, and shot himself in the head. All these stories about how he met his demise. At times, this really great, enjoyable movie takes on the air of like an epidemiological study, you know, the study of how epidemics spread. How did it arrive? How did it come to be? Why was it that Cecil Rodriguez became so popular in South Africa? They try to locate their patient zero. That there was a woman, an American woman, flying into Cape Town to visit her South African boyfriend who carried with her the cassette of Sisto Rodriguez singing and from that one cassette came all of his popularity. No one really knew how it came to be. 
what they did know, what the people in the film do know, is that for many, thousands of young, progressive, mostly white, although not exclusively, it's rumored that Stephen Biko, one of the primary opposition leaders, and himself killed by the apartheid regime, was a fan of Sister Rodriguez. But for most of the white young progressives in the 1970s in apartheid South Africa, cut off from the rest of the world, they drew strength and encouragement from the songs of this young man. One of the really cool things in this movie is that they take you to the archive of the censored and banned materials of South Africa in the 1970s. And they pull out one of his LPs. Y'all remember what that is, right? And they showed someone meticulously one of the censors going through with a needle and scratching all the way through the grooves of the vinyl, thereby ensuring that no one could play this album. That's how much of a threat he was perceived to be. And these young kids who grew up under the apartheid regime grew into a time in which apartheid no longer existed into the 1990s and started to ask themselves, now we're adults, what happened to Cecil Rodriguez and why? And the guy they were searching for was incredibly talented. I have to tell you, I didn't really know much at all about his music before I watched this movie, but musically, it's right in my sweet spot. He performs what they call Americana, which is this amazing mix, in my opinion, of kind of country and folk and rock with a little bit of rhythm and blues thrown in, and it's absolutely my favorite kind of music. I mean, his lyrics are so sweet and introspective and at times challenging, stops you in the tracks. The Sugar Man, that's his song, from which the movie gets its title, about this guy forlornly looking probably in the middle of the night for his drug dealer. There's this lyric about this introspective longing that Sisto sings, the sweetest kiss I ever got was the one I've never tasted. Sings elsewhere, night rains tap at my window, winds of thoughts passing by. She laughed when I tried to tell her, hello only ends in goodbye. There's some Zen poetry in there. Time to think on these things. And so these guys in South Africa who were his devotees, they went looking for him as... The post-apartheid country opened up and they set up websites wondering, did this guy really die? How can we connect with him? One of these was called Searching for Jesus because in one of his few remaining recordings where, it, remember in the old LPs in the center of the album, they would include who wrote, who wrote the lyrics, who wrote the song. One of them said Jesus Rodriguez. Jesus, we might say, but in South Africa they say Jesus Rodriguez. So Searching for Jesus. And one of these guys, the featured in the movie, was asleep one night at 1 a.m. And he gets a call. And it's from America. And the other end of the line says, this is Eva Rodriguez. Sisto Rodriguez's daughter. One of them. He's alive and living in Detroit. In the same house he has been in for decades. Turns out after his music career flopped, Sister Rodriguez was a laborer, was an unsuccessful, amazingly unsuccessful politician, coming in 137th out of 150 places and running for Detroit City Council. Raised three daughters, 
Although they never had a lot of money, his daughters all reflect on how he invested time and energy, taking them to museums and libraries and engaging their minds growing up. And here's where the story really gets compelling for me. Sista Rodriguez is brought in the late 90s to South Africa for a series of concerts, sold out, thousands of people coming to see their hero. And he's a shy guy. And he's asked in the interview for this movie, what is it like to recognize and to know that you were a superstar? And he pauses for a moment and grows silent and says, I don't know what to respond to that. At another point, a journalist who interviewed him in the late 90s in South Africa asked him about finally getting his due, getting his recognition, about getting his fame back. And he got absolutely no response from Sisto Rodriguez about that question. In this age, i got to say it's so refreshing in this age in which people are famous simply for being famous. And that the picture that emerges of Cesar Rodriguez is that he didn't reject fame and he didn't depend upon it. This is not the story of a misanthropic J.D. Salinger hiding himself from the world. This is not a story of Greta Garbo, I want to be alone. His first words upon taking the stage in 1998 in South Africa and receiving a 10-minute long standing ovation, he couldn't even start his set of music. He just smiled shyly and said, thanks for keeping me alive. Sister Rodriguez reminds me of the story of the Hasidic master, that mystical, mysterious school of Judaism. He was asked of this Hasidic master, asked of him, what was it that made him special, that made him truly come alive and able to teach other people? What was the most important thing to him? And one of his students said, the most important thing to this spiritual master was whatever he was doing at the time and whoever he was with at the time. You get some of that same energy from Sisto Rodriguez, that he could take fame, he could leave it, and that he lived his life just as it was wherever he was in his life. At the end of the movie, the mystery of Rodriguez still continues, except now it's kind of a happy, wonderful mystery. His music has traveled continents, has changed lives, like wisdom always does itself. It knows no boundaries. It goes where it wants to, where it finds good ground for its seed, and even when the personality disappears or dies, the music remains. But here's the thing. The why of Sisto Rodriguez, why did he come to be so popular? Why was he rejected at first? That question still isn't quite answered. We still don't quite know this guy. So this is the point of the movie that I found most rich. The question that it poses for us, how do we sit with the unanswered questions in our lives? Those unanswered whys when we want to find out the mystery. Now one answer comes from one of Sisto's songs. If you go ahead, two slides. 
One of his songs is simply called Cuz. As in, because. It's a whole list of answers to a question that we never hear posed. Because. He goes on, cuz, cuz, cuz. Well, take away that apostrophe, and you, of course, have cause. What's the cause for all this? The movie sets out to find a cause for his popularity, his disappearance, and his resurgence. We never quite get the answer to that cause. Now, hear me, and I believe this. One of the best things about being alive, being human, is that we get to find out stuff. (laughs) We get to tinker. We get to see how things work. We get to be the kind of people who either benefit or get to do the investigation of finding out how the human body works and curing diseases and making stuff up. But at a certain level, in all of our lives, there comes a point where perhaps like a frustrated parent, like a parent does, asking, perhaps answering to a very precocious seven-year-old, why? Why does the sun rise in the morning? Because it's in the sky. Why is the sun in the sky? Because that's where sunshine comes from. Why do we need sunshine? We need sunshine to grow. Why do we need to grow? On and on and on and on. Some of you have probably had these dialogues, maybe this morning. (laughs) And at some point, you know what the answer is? Just (laughs) because. At a certain level, we have to, like the singer Iris Dement says, just let the mystery be. (laughs) Just because when we can deal with those forever unexplained whys in this life, we can enter this stream of life more deeply. We can enter into that deeper place of acceptance. One of the things I love about the Buddhist tradition and why I draw so much strength from it and integrate it into our Unitarian Universalist traditions is that it's quite open and upfront about what needs to remain unanswered. Religions aren't real good about doing that. (laughs) In Buddhism, there's simply something called the 14 unanswered questions. The Buddha, when he traveled during his ministry, was asked these questions all the time. Is the world infinite, or does it have an end? Are the soul and the body the same thing, or are they separate? Do Buddhas exist after death, or not? And you know what the Buddha's response to this was? He just refused to engage. (laughs) See, too much of religion is about carrots or sticks. Dangling the carrot out here. Behave the way we want and you'll get the reward. Don't behave the way we want and you're going to get the stick. Some of you literally know that from growing up in certain kinds of traditions which the ruler came out when you were disappointed. Too much religion is about colonizing the afterlife. Think about it. About who holds the ticket. Who can get you in. In my view, Thoreau was so much more right. When he was asked by an orthodox religious relative of his, when he was dying, relatively young, of tuberculosis, if you prepared yourself for the next life, and his response... I prefer to take it one life at a time. (laughs) So much honesty in that. You know, he doesn't say there's nothing coming after. He says, I prefer to go with what we got right now. See, when we can take it easy with ourselves, with first causes or final causes, 
with all those questions that too many religions occupy themselves with, this is where we absolutely came from and this is where you're absolutely going and instead return right now to what is and enter that from an open-hearted and loving place, that's how we really grow. That's how we really cultivate curiosity. This is what we mean when we talk about in our beliefs and values that we can experience God without defining God and in this way know the divinity, know divinity in our lives by living fully, loving generously, and being who we are called to be. Easing up on that quest for first causes and final causes that so many people want to say they know but really don't. Now if we live in this way, letting go of that quest to master everything, it makes a real and transformative difference in how we treat ourselves and how we treat other people. It can make a real difference in the amount of struggle and suffering we cause to ourselves and to other people. Sometimes in our quest to want to know, to want to figure it all out, to want to fix it, to want to solve life, I'm reminded of that story of that young child who was found one day climbing, tunneling into a tremendous pile of horse manure. And when she's asked, what are you doing in there? She says, with all this horse crap, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. Too many religions leave us in the muck. <laughs> Flummoxed, thinking we have to solve our lives. This particularly shows up, not in a way that we even might say religiously, but it shows up emotionally in our lives. Like let's say we're struggling with someone. Struggling with someone maybe close to us. And we find ourselves, I'm going to raise my hand on this one because I do this more than I would like to, but at least I can recognize it now. Raise your hand if you've ever done this. You're in a difficult situation with someone, maybe you love this person, and, and, and you're projecting the conversation you're going to have before you've ever had it in your head. Let's see those hands, people. All right, ah, that's most of us, okay. Wow. All right, Th those of you who didn't, uh, two hands, I like that, that's excellent. <laughs> You've got several conversations going on in your head right now. Welcome to the club. For those of you who are completely rational, this box in the audience, let's talk afterward. How do you do that? <laughs> you know, we can torment ourselves with these bottomless questions about another person's motivation, <laughs> about another person's intention. Wanting to get inside their head, fix them, solve them, and everything will be peaceful for us. We spend so much time in these bottomless questions of can't or can they? Will they or won't they? Rather than dealing with the most profound and basic issue there is. Is it happening or isn't it happening? Ed Freeman, who was a rabbi, a teacher in what's called systems theory, understanding how the parts interact with the whole and understanding that in our lives we're always in relationship. We're always in relationship to something else, to someone else. We're always in relationship with this life. He tells a story about learning to move from will they, won't they, can they, can't they, into is or isn't. He tells a story about a woman who for years lived with an alcoholic husband. Not physically abusive, but the household was deeply chaotic and painful. She spent years cajoling, begging, asking, pleading, 
covering up, I mean, run the full gamut of what we call codependence. And she was it. She was the enabler. And nothing worked. <laughs> nothing worked. Until one day she gave up and got wise. And she sat down at the kitchen table one morning with her husband, hung over as he was, and she said, I can't do anything to change this. You can go on drinking. It'll probably kill you. I'm going to ask you to do one thing. If you choose this path, would you please purchase a lot more life insurance so that eventually when you die, you'll leave something for us after you're gone. Now it's said in the story, this is the moment that God decided to sober up. <laughs> Even if he hadn't, you see the shift she made there from the will they, will he, won't he, can he, can't he, to he is or he isn't. This is acceptance of what is. This is letting the mystery of what we can't solve be and skillfully starting to, in a healthy way, depersonalize our lives. I'm not talking the kind of depersonalization that comes from trauma. I'm talking about letting our boundaries of what we must have, what we must want, ease up just a little bit. And so on that basis, accept what's going on. It's the first meditation I ever learned, the first guided meditation I ever learned. It scared the crap out of me when I heard this when I was 27. Now I love it. Breathe in, what am I? Breathe out, don't know. <laughs> Breathe in, what am I? Breathe out, don't know. See, why I love that now is because it says we're all works in progress. I'm a work in progress. You're a work in progress. And if we're works in progress, you know what we can do? We can get unstuck. We can move beyond some of our habitual patterns. We can move beyond some of our addictive behaviors. We can move beyond some of our unhealthy ways that we relate to ourselves, treat other people. When we can get unstuck and move beyond solving and move to working with our lives, then the connections we can have with this life abound and simultaneously, yes, it's a physics problem that math probably doesn't quite work out, but it's absolutely true. Simultaneously, at the same time, we can let more of life in and we can let more of life go. Let more of life in and let more of life go. If we recognize that we're not finished, we don't know the end. Many of us don't even know the truth of the beginning. Let more of life in and let more of life go. This is how Herman Hesse put this same truth in his fictional understanding of the life of the Buddha. Siddhartha, it's a book I know a lot of folks read, especially in the generation of those who were peers to Sisto Rodriguez. And it's about the character of Siddhartha sitting by a river and meditating. When Siddhartha listened attentively to this river, this river of voices, this river of life, all the voices, all the goals, all the yearnings, all the sorrows, all the pleasures, all the good and evil, all of them together was the world. All of them together were the streams of events and the music of life that made this song of a thousand voices when he did not listen only to sorrow or laughter, did not bind his soul to any one particular voice, but could hear them all, the whole, the unity then the great song of a thousand voices 
consisted of just one word. Perfection. This is not the perfection of flawlessness. This is not perfectionism. This is the perfection of touching life and letting life touch us. I want to end with the words of the people who are always my favorite teachers, better than any theology I've ever read, better than anything I found in any book, which are the words and the guidance of people who are dying consciously. A member of this congregation, dead now four, four and a half years, Patty was her name. Some of you remember her. Late 40s. Not as much life as any of us want. But knew that her time was coming to an end. And intentionally started to make her peace where she could. When I say consciously dying, that's not easy. The only thing harder is unconsciously dying. <laughs> pretending it's not going on. We had a conversation one day late in the afternoon about a month before her death. And we were talking about all the ideas under the sun about what maybe came next, of what this process was like for her. And she said her name for it, the it that ultimately is unnameable, was the great immensity. that her life at its end was reaching the place of the great immensity. She wasn't into the mystery-solving business. She didn't torture herself in her last days of asking all the questions of why. She was just preparing herself for the path that eventually all of us must take, and it's not a someday, it's now because she knew the great immensity belongs to all of us, not just someday, but here and now. Like the words of the beautiful poet Mary Oliver who said, when my time comes, I want to walk through that door sighing. I want to walk through that door full of curiosity. The lessons of the great immensity are not for someday and elsewhere. Therefore, right here and right now, it's a call to participate in this life, to recognize where you are, where each of us is, to know our struggles, to have courage to face them, to know the things that scare us and have even more courage to face them. And then in spite of all these things that block us or hold us down or seem to, to admit still that we are invited to this great song, bigger than any of our personalities, bigger than any of our individual paths. And it ends in this final word, belong. We already belong to it, and it already belongs to us. Today, in your hearts, in your eyes, with your spirits, with your souls, with your hands, with your bodies, 
May you know the great immensity. And may you be called to it. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Mysterious source excelling and going beyond all names and all ideas of all names. May we allow ourselves to accept this life. And accepting this life knowing that we are accepted by it as well. A wash in all of our questions, a wash in all of life's complexity, a wash in all of our perfections, a wash in all of our gifts, a wash in all of the voices, a wash in the great song. May we find that ability to swim deeply and to be carried on by that wider, deeper, and never-ending current of love. Amen.